This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. In this segment, uh, Jason, you know, it's so interesting. We were speaking here on Tuesday about uh, what an interesting day that was with both the Manafort and the Cohen verdicts. And then there's a really interesting story out today from Ben Bartenstein, who joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios, about when there are domestic problems, President Trump also tries to distract and focus abroad and the impact that is also now going to be having on emerging markets. So, Ben, great to have you. Um, walk us through. This doesn't seem like it should be good now for the emerging markets. That's right, Taylor. Uh, distraction really is at the core of Trump's foreign policy. In some of his weakest moments domestically, he has turned abroad and come out firing. Uh, he's sanctioned the Venezuelan government, Russia, more recently Turkey earlier this month. And now last night he came after South Africa, which was really kind of out of left field. Yeah, where did that come from? Have you, as you've dug into it today, any hints as to why he decided to do this now, other than the distraction element? <laughs> why South Africa? There is no real clear answer to that. Um, but it's part of, again, a series of emerging market countries that just yeah. so happens to be a bit more vulnerable uh, to rising interest rates and some of the, the broader uh, global backdrops. Uh, so obviously the RAND uh, sinking quite a bit today. Uh, Turkey uh, sunk to an all-time low earlier this month after the sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. So coincidentally, some of the weakest links in emerging markets have been the ones drawing Trump's ire. And uh, we're also joined here by Damian Sassauer, who's our chief emerging markets credit strategist over at Bloomberg Intelligence. Damian, I want to get your thoughts on the South African brand. Uh, Trump, just to refresh everyone's memory, said in a tweet that he had asked the U.S. Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, to look into land and farm seizures and the large-scale killing of farmers. This was following a report by Fox News, South Africa responding, saying... Uh, you know, we're, we're looking into the tweet. How is this affecting the RAND today? Yeah, well, the RAND's off 1.6% today, but I think it was very deliberate that uh, President Trump chose this topic and chose South Africa because South Africa's long been embracing land seizures as a way to achieve equality, you know, and racial justice, right? Mm. And given his constituency, it's it's textbook Trump. It's deflect and redirect, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, he's been in the... President Trump has survived in spotlight for many, many years. He knows how to divert attention elsewhere, and this is just more of the same. And so, Damien, just staying with you for a second, give us the the broad picture of EM as you see it. As we're sitting here today, given all this distraction, sure. and especially given some of the really major headlines we've seen uh, over the past three or four weeks, not the least of which is Turkey. Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, Ben makes a great point. I mean, EM has had a very, very bad run this year, right? And timing is key here because the longer EM fails to perform, 
the more likely offshore money stays away and the more likely a dollar squeeze becomes a dollar shortage. Mm. I mean, we must remember, right, a dearth of offshore capital feeds through into the real economies for emerging market nations, most of whom are running, you know, sizable current account deficits, right? So tighter financial conditions means higher inflation and ultimately weaker growth. But really, I think, you know, what I can kind of take away from this just in terms of, of President Trump is, you know, he's long looking for someone to strap an albatross around if the economy goes south. And that someone is Chair Powell. So by calling uh, out Fed rate hikes, I think Trump is undermining the Fed's ability to deliver, you know, a healthy pause if inflation actually does turn lower. And it just so happens, you know, Ben points this out. I mean, with BlackRock, Rick Reeder today was calling for just that. He's saying that, you know, persistent copper weakness is actually, in fact, indicating that, you know, um, that, that inflation may be turning lower and the Fed may have its hands tied in terms of being able to to deliver a pause when the market's not pricing that in. Yeah, Ben, I wanted to get your thoughts on some of the experts that you've been speaking with. I know, for example, um, so often we speak with John Norman. He runs J.P. Morgan's cross-asset fundamental strategy. What are some of the experts saying about how they're positioning with EM given all the volatility? Right. The, the broader point for some of the larger emerging market money managers from JP Morgan to BlackRock is that uh, emerging markets look pretty attractive on a long-term basis, but near-term, given how intense the pressure is on Trump right now and how he has turned on the attack to emerging markets, it could be uh, disappointing uh, returns for the, the coming months. Uh, I want to touch briefly on the Brazilian real because we were talking about that earlier this week. We got a headline saying it was now its weakest and going back about two and a half years on some of the political environment and some of the leftists. Um, and we're seeing, again, the dollar strength versus uh, Brazilian real weakness again today, about 1.7 percent. Where does the real go from here? Yeah, I mean, it broke through that psychological four barrier and that was a big break. And if you noticed when it did it, Ben, it, it happened right into the close when London was out of the office, right? right? So I thought that was kind of interesting. But nevertheless, I mean, Brazil's got some real issues. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro, who is basically leading um, in the polls, if you exclude Lula, who's actually in prison and is leading in the polls, I mean, they, you know, they've got some real issues. And, um, and unfortunately, it just seems like they don't have the mechanisms to to correct some of these, you know, uh, these structural deficiencies that they have, you know, I'm talking about social security reform, all that stuff. And, and, and look, you know, fundamentally, you might argue that Brazil looks, you know, relatively healthy, at least relative to where it's been in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, but, but it's got some real challenges ahead. And, and I would not be surprised if, you know, you know, call it, you know, this time next year, um, you know, Brazil isn't, uh, you know, rated single B. Right. Damien Tassauer, Chief Market Strategist, great to be with you here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio, along with Ben Bartenstein, our man on emerging markets for Bloomberg News. Thank you both for this great perspective. And Taylor, it's very interesting Yeah, really interesting because we started out the week talking a lot about Turkey. We've talked about the South African RAND. We've talked about the Brazilian real, And it seems like every time we say one offer idiosyncratic risk, it ends up being a much broader conversation about emerging markets, and then you wonder how idiosyncratic it really is. And I liked that Ben's story, which everybody should read on the Bloomberg, brings in the big names, J.P. Morgan, BlackRock, really starting to make their voices known on this. This is Bloomberg Radio. Hit you to ride. Well, hitching a ride is one alternative to owning a car, but we're going to go a little bit deeper and figure out how people are, in fact, shifting their driving habits away from 
car ownership. And to help us understand this, Michelle Krebs, she's executive analyst at autotrader.com, joining us on the phone from Detroit. Michelle, great to be with you. So this is a pretty significant trend, and you're seeing it happen right there in front of you and the implications of it. Tell us what's going on. Right. So Cox Automotive, which is the parent company of Auto Trader and Kelly Blue Book, um, recently did a study. We, we did a mobility study that looks at autonomous vehicles and alternative ownership because the two go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, what we found is private ownership still dominates the automotive landscape, but uh, new options like ride hailing and subscription programs are becoming more popular uh, with uh, particularly young urban uh, dwellers. And when you talk about subscriptions, you're talking about Zipcar and, and those types of uh, services, right? Not really. We're no. talking about subscription services are uh, things like you you pay a monthly fee um, and you uh, get access to a car. You may be able to trade out cars. Um, there uh-huh. are uh, a, a BMW, Porsche, Mercedes are all starting to put their toe oh, into that. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, Sorry. I, yeah. I, mis- I, I misunderstood you. Interesting. Yeah. So you, you pay a subscription fee and, and you can can- the good thing about it is, you, unlike a lease, you can cancel it at any right. time. You can swap out different cars you want a convertible for the weekend. You can do that and get a sport utility the next week. Um, And so that's very attractive to people. And, Michelle, I wonder how much of this study that you looked at for 2018 is really dependent upon geography and demographics. You know, we keep hearing that millennials want to be in urban areas. They don't want a car. Um, But then on the other hand, I do hear that as people grow up and start to form families, they're going out into more of these suburban areas. How much of that is a factor? Well, we're actually, and that is where it all started. Um, we did see in our last study a couple of years ago, it was much more focused on young and urban uh, dwellers who were uh, who, who are more open to these ideas. But we're seeing it across the spectrum of age groups and regions. I mean, we're even seeing Uber in rural areas, for example. So it is gaining traction. It is concentrated with young urban dwellers more because there are disadvantages, of, uh, particularly in cities, for owning a, a vehicle. But well, and the the other thing, affordability has become the big uh, mm-hmm. issue. You know, the cost of vehicles has gone way up, and people tell us they need mobility more than ever, but uh, they don't necessarily feel they need to own a vehicle. And when you see the sort of broader shift to electric vehicles and whatnot, does that shift maybe people's interest in owning a car, or is this a secular change in the way that people feel about a car in their life as as an ongoing or a permanent investment? Well, I think that the, the second is true to some extent, but yeah. we, but what we are seeing is these alternative ownership models are uh, going to lay the groundwork for when we have autonomous vehicles, because right. certainly autonomous vehicles will be um, will have them available in a different way than personal ownership. Jason, as you mentioned in your intro, Michelle is in Detroit. She's witnessing this all firsthand. Michelle, I ask you, how are the companies reacting? Does this mean that they have to bring the cost of a lease down to even get people in the door? 
Well, uh, the automakers are also rethinking their business models, uh, and they are looking at, you know, for example, you know, I, I mentioned Porsche, Mercedes, uh, uh, BMW are offering subscription services. General Motors has uh, Maven, which is their umbrella for um, all kinds of new mobility services. So they are definitely, they know if they want a business in the future, they have to change their business models as well to accommodate consumers. And you've talked a lot about some of the subscription services as well. I wonder how much do Uber, Lyft, and some of the models that we don't even know yet, how much does that have an impact on this? Well, certainly, you know, when we look at ride hailing, that has really become mainstream. And if you look at the when you ask consumers who are the leaders in ride hailing, they say Uber and Lyft, by and large. Uh, there, there's hardly anybody else that compares. Um, so that we are seeing a tremendous amount of growth in that. We were surprised that you know even urban, uh, rural areas in the last two years have uh, the usage has gone way up. So that's um, it's getting towards ubiquitous in that regard. Michelle Krebs, executive analyst for AutoTrader.com, joining us on the phone from Detroit. The report from Cox Automotive is called Evolution of Mobility Study, Alternative Ownership. Very interesting. Thanks for being with us. Taylor, I, I have to say that there's a, there's a lot of trends underneath this megatrend, it feels so, like. So some people could consider me a millennial, I guess. And what's interesting <laughs> is she be, said... I think you're either a millennial or you're not, but okay. <laughs> we'll go with that. She talked a lot about affordability. And Jason, I will say, no, New York City is total totally an anomaly but i had a great lease on a car it was yeah. only a couple hundred dollars a month but to park it four to five hundred dollars in new york wow. city so i can't do it you cannot afford a car here in manhattan right very good perspective Not good for our radio listeners <laughs> <laughs> absolutely all right you're listening to jason kelly and taylor riggs on bloomberg radio Kind of a must-play song, right? I, I mean, can we agree? Can we just cruise down the I-5 right now. There you go. The I. Listen to you. That's in California. That's in California. Yeah, got it. All right. Uh, so. As Taylor and I have been alluding to, this is, I think, by far our favorite story in Bloomberg Business Week, uh, and we should point to our Bloomberg Television Radio Show on Bloomberg Business Week coming up this weekend on your local dial. Uh, Claire Suddeth is the author of this story about Harley Davidson, and it comes at such an interesting time, Claire. And I think Taylor and I agree we have to start. You hung out with you know some Harley devotees shall we say what was that like uh actually really enjoyable i loved it um but yes i did there are you know the the motorcycle gangs the biker clubs that you've probably heard of like the hell's angels but there are also about 1400 um hog groups which is harley owner groups that are company sponsored all around the world um so i went out riding with one of those they're law-abiding so i figured as a journalist (laughs) it was probably a better idea um but they were really great uh Basically, they do long-distance rides for fun, sometimes across country, sometimes just for the weekend. So we just did a Sunday afternoon ride. Um, But while they were together, there were about 25 of them or so. They talked a lot about Harley-Davidson, both what it meant to them, why they love the bikes, and, you know, what they make of the current political and financial situation the company is in. And what is that? Because at Bloomberg, of course, we know the financial situation, that sales have been slowing and Harley's trying to sort of reinvent itself a little bit. But what do they say, and particularly about that, and then also about some of the comments that Trump has made recently about Harley-Davidson? 
Yeah, well, it was interesting because they largely like the president, support the president, um, like most of what he's been doing. Um, but on this particular issue, they took a much more nuanced opinion. They still wanted Harley to make motorcycles in the U.S. And there was some misunderstanding between some of them about, oh, Harley's moving everything overseas. And one right. guy corrected the other guy saying, no, 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 they're just moving the bikes that they're going to sell in Europe overseas because of these tariffs. And so the first guy was like, oh, huh, okay, well, hmm, well, I still don't really like it. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, they, first of all, they were trying to figure out what was actually happening. Um, and then they also were a little bit conflicted because they love Harley. A lot of them had Harley tattoos. They were all wearing the jackets or the T-shirts or what have you. Um, and so this isn't something that they're just going to write off. Right. We don't like the company anymore. This is their lifestyle. And, and I want to get to that point because I think that's such a key part of this, that this is a lifestyle brand, to, to say the least. This is something that people identify with. their their very being. I mean, th this defines you know who they are. You have a great quote in the story about Harley in, in view of its competitors, nobody has a Honda tattoo. You know, like Harley just says something about you, and yet that demographic is fading away or at least not continuing to buy these bikes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is a blessing and a curse for Harley because, uh, you know, rarely is a company logo embraced as – you know, emblematic of what an entire person stands for. But that's what Harley has come to represent for these people. That said, from the company's perspective, most of those people already own Harleys, have owned them for years. They're not buying a ton of new bikes, and they're getting older, so eventually they're going to age out of riding altogether. I did ride with um, one of the guys who was 89 years old, so wow. some of them have a few decades still. It, but Is this the guy who had sort of rigged it up so he had an electric scooter attached yeah, to the yeah, back? Yeah, yeah, He was, was a Korean War veteran. He was, he was pretty – there's a detail that's not in the story, but his um, sort of uh, footrests were hand grenades. So he was he was the real deal. That, that uh, is hardcore. And as you uh, talk hardcore. about – aging you know one of harley's growth strategies is of course to go abroad try to get some millennial bikers whether it be asia or europe as you mentioned moving some of the production over there my big question is how do you market over there given at least here in the u.s it is so associated with a nationalist american culture how are they going to market and sell bikes over there when they're not in america well, I think that's a really good question, but I think that what Harley represents is a bit actually more nuanced than that because there are also these really classic luxury bikes. So if you're into motorcycles, maybe you'll buy a Harley Davidson because they're really pretty fancy, actually. So there's that. Um, and the fact that they do represent America, but you could say they also represent, you know, 1950s, 60s, America, Easy yeah. Rider. So people buy into that. Um, and I think that's sort of what they have been marketing themselves as. I mean, they're well known everywhere. And only, I think, recently has it become less of a sort of old school Americana right. concept and more of a nationalistic very politicized image. We just heard from Michelle Krebs over at Auto Trader about sort of some of these macro trends around car ownership that, you know, 
people of a, of a certain age, meaning younger, uh, are not buying cars in the same way. How do they feel about motorcycles, generally speaking, demographically? How, how do millennials approach this as a concept? Demographically, millennials are not buying motorcycles. This is like the big overarching theme um, that Harley is struggling with is motorcycles are expensive. Yeah. In America, they are a luxury, definitely a leisure vehicle. You're rarely using it to commute. Um, and if you do, you're probably not going to buy the classic Harley because those are the bigger motorcycles. So there's that problem, but it's it's also just compounded by the fact that millennials don't have a ton of money as a group. Yeah. They all have student loans. They're now coming of age where they're starting to have kids. So they've got mortgage, kids, everything. It's just something that is somewhat out of reach for them. And Harley has said, you know, they're seeing this younger customer base more financially strapped than previous customer bases at that age. Claire said it is an absolute must read. The cover story of Bloomberg Business Week. You can get it now uh, online and on the Bloomberg terminal. Thank you so much for being with us. It is easier to park a motorcycle than I, a car, though. That's exactly where I was I'm going. I know. I know. Taylor on a hog. Let's see it. How much does it cost? That is it. It's all about online e-commerce today. Uh, Joining us to discuss Alibaba, which we woke up this morning to their earnings, is Selena Wang. She's our global technology reporter for Bloomberg News, joining us from the Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Selena, great to have you. I first just want to talk, you know, when we woke up, what really struck me was 61% top-line revenue growth year over year. I like to look at top-line revenue growth. I feel like it's a lot less uh, hard to, to manage, um, keeping it up on the top line, especially if you don't know if they're following Gap or, or what accounting estimates they're using. What did you make of the numbers? It was certainly a good quarter for them overall. They've reported its fastest pace of growth in more than four years. As you mentioned, first quarter revenue jumped 61%. Now, this was actually largely driven by growth in newer areas like cloud computing and entertainment. Uh, But if we dig down a little deeper into the numbers, you will see that if it wasn't for consolidation of some of their other services like Olama, which is food delivery, and Sainya Logistics, revenue would have climbed just 49%, which is still impressive, but that's actually its slow lowest pace in two years. So what we're seeing here is that as Alibaba expands outside of its core e-commerce offerings, it's generating more revenue from those areas, but it's also starting to drag on its margins. So, Selena, it feels like, and, and based on some of the reporting you and others have done, it seems to be true that Alibaba is benefiting from some of its competitors stumbling uh, over the last quarter. Tell us about the landscape there. It's been a rough quarter for a lot of the other large tech companies in America. You had Facebook and Twitter that suffered from some real fundamental issues about growth in its core businesses and stagnant user growth. We also saw its competitor Tencent have one of its worst profit drops in about a decade, and that was largely because of regulatory issues. And from Alibaba, we see that it's largely been immune to the problems that struck a lot of its other competitors. We haven't seen it hurt by the looming trade war, the political tensions, but it does bring into question, given that Tencent suffered so terribly from regulatory issues, whether or not that could hit some 
some part of Alibaba's business further down the road. Selena, you mentioned gross margins, and I want to know what some of the analysts on the street are saying, because Alibaba, as you know, is having to pay up for sales growth and is hurting their margins. I don't know if it has to do with fending off a lot of competition that's coming online. They also have to pay up to fight off a global slowdown or, or a, a countrywide slowdown for them. Are analysts concerned about gross margins now back to a historic low? Investors certainly want better visibility into what margins will look like into the future. But at the same time, they're hopeful that all of their investments are building a stronger ecosystem for Alibaba. So some of their main investment areas are cloud computing, offline services and local services. So especially one big area is food delivery. It actually announced it's merging its local services and food delivery apps, Ulama and Kobe. And they're also teaming up with SoftBank to put more than $3 billion into Ulama. And part of that is, in fact, to fend off competition from another company called Meituan Dianping that's backed by its rival Tencent. It's also been expanding its supermarket chains. It's invested in offline retail. It actually started doing that before Amazon bought Whole Foods. It's created this modern grocery store experience with this Hema supermarket chain. It's also bought department store retailers, hypermarket chains, investing in entertainment. So they're really building a moat around everything that modern China Chinese consumers do and mm-hmm. want to spend their money on. So, Selena, you had a great story back in June about Alibaba's M&A strategy, especially as it relates to the U.S., and you put that in the context of a lot of actions by the government here in the United States and the action between the Chinese government and the U.S. government. How does that play out from here and what's been going on? Well, the United States was never a main priority for Alibaba in the first place. They recognize that there's huge incumbent competition here from the likes of Amazon. And with the looming trade war and the political tensions, the U.S. has been deprioritized even further. I noticed from the data and talking to sources that Alibaba really hadn't made many investments in the U.S. recently, mm-hmm. not even many tiny startup investments. And following the and financial deal that went through, they tried to buy MoneyGram. Um, we've seen even less deal making since then. For a company like Alibaba, they're really focused on emerging markets in Southeast Asia and South Asia. Those markets are ripe for disruption, and there's much more room for them to dominate and grow in those areas. And as a result of what's going on with the political tensions, they're even further doubling down in those areas. Thank you so much. That was Selena Wang, our global technology reporter from Bloomberg News, joining us from our 960 studio in San Francisco, giving us the lowdown on Baba. And Jason, you know what really struck out to me is investment in the cloud. You've seen Amazon Web Services, you know, really start to invest in the cloud because it's a higher margin, higher growth strategy. And Alibaba's cloud business was up 93%. That was higher than 10 cents cloud computing revenue growth. And even though it's lower than the three digit growth they had the last yeah. two quarters, um, it's a it's a really high number. And imagine that it will be a future growth strategy for them. And it's a reminder that these massive Chinese companies, especially Alibaba and especially Tencent are having a massive impact globally, not just in China, and even as they don't play directly in the United States, as Selena was saying there toward the end of this segment, they are still looming large in the minds of both companies, CEOs, and investors as well. I'm driving in my car, I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? 
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk to music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And that is our drive to the close. Jason, we are about 10 minutes away here from the closing bell. Uh, and we are lucky enough to be joined by Jeff Crumpleman. He's the chief investment strategist and director of equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors. Uh, Jeff, one thing I love about your report in the third paragraph, you say talking about the bull market. Who cares about the length? Interestingly enough, just in the last 30 minutes, we showed a chart showing that even though it feels like the longest running, it has been a slow grind that the percent annual rate of change year over year is well below the post-war average. Uh, What do you make of that? Who cares about the length? It's only been uh, sort of a slow grind, if, if I'm correct. Yeah, you know, there are a couple charts that just kind of give me peace of mind. Uh, you know, a nice workout in the morning, I think, can do that. But there are a couple charts that you can look at that just give you perspective and peace of mind on that. And one of them is if you look at a chart of the S&P 500 going back to, you know, the 1920s, you'll see that the market tends to move kind of in sideways patterns for multi-years, multi-decades. And you saw that, you know, in the 30s and 40s and the 70s. And then certainly in 2000, that first 10 years of the new millennium, the the market moved sideways with huge uh, kind of bear market swings to the downside. We are just now in 2013, we just got back to even uh, to where we were in 2000. So in many ways, we're just in the early innings of what could be a kind of multi-year, multi-decade secular bull with corrections within them. But uh, when the fundamentals and the valuation and the technical uh, price trends are as solid as they are, it sure is hard to say uh, it's over. So who cares about the age? I think it's, in the grand scheme of things, relatively early. Well, and Jeff, let, let's talk about some recent numbers that are out specifically from an earnings perspective. Uh, digging into the consumer space, because clearly the consumer has helped has has helped drive this bull market that we've been talking about. We had numbers from Lowe's yesterday. Investors seemed to like it. What did you think? Uh, no, I would agree totally with you. We like to look at the top down, but we also have to get our hands dirty and and go bottom up as well and look at individual stocks, and we love to do that. And one, you know, a very surprising phenomenon uh, of late has been the kind of renaissance of brick and mortar retail. Yeah. So we do own Lowe's. That's a good example. But you could go, you know, talk about Lowe's, Nordstrom, Kohl's, uh, Lululemon, uh, Lemon, um, Williams Sonoma, um, you know, uh, Home Depot, on and on. TJ Maxx, TJX. Uh, you're talking about five Target, Walmart. You're talking about you know kind of four to seven percent identical store sales growth, and that's just solid demand out there. And retail sales have been strong, and that represents uh, you know both tax cuts uh, and and just strong demand, strong employment, um, decent wage growth. Yeah. So 
Yeah, yeah. Good backdrop. I would agree with you on that. And, and so as you dig into that space specifically, and specifically on retail, it does feel like we're in a, a sort of um, have and have nots world, though, uh, where you do have some names that are, continue to struggle in the brick and in the brick and mortar world. How do you choose the, the winners there? Well, so we do look at just the, the business model and competitive moat and differentiators. And I'll be honest with you, we have, uh, within retail, stuck to those areas where we've seen kind of stronger secular growth. So uh-huh. we've liked the home-related, the, the, the Lowe's and the Home Depots of the world. Um, we have also um, been invested in, in TJ Maxx and feel like it's just ability to, to grab interesting treasure hunt type of inventory. Um, it's It's been more Amazon-proof than others, and so they've shown good comp growth, and we've uh, benefited from that. I think that other areas within consumer, though, where we've really been positioned, and it's helped us over the last several years, has been an experience. So, you know, we've owned names in um, both the cruise line and the, the hotel um, and in casino uh, gaming kind of uh, area. And it's not been a contributor this year, but we, we find just excellent value and still solid growth. And, and certainly in 2017, we benefited from uh, some of those names, and we think we will um, as we move into the back half of this year. Jeff, you talk about the difference between being a top-down perspective and a bottom-up stock picker. Top-down, you say that you like the financials. How nervous are you, though, that the yield curve on the twos tens is now a 20 handle. Uh, the 10 year, as you mentioned, isn't anywhere close to being a 3%. Financials, as we know, really benefit from higher rates. You are not getting that. What do you see in financials that some others are missing? Well, you certainly have had the benefit of um, softened regulatory um, you know, criteria that's, it's, it's, that's positive uh, for these entities. Share buyback, the ability to boost dividends, just more flexibility on uh, return of capital to shareholders. And we do think that what's kept the lid on these stocks, and we've noticed it in, in when we look at our portfolio day-to-day, um, just the trade rhetoric and concerns about trade has kind of kept a lid on interest rates. Um, I don't think people anticipated that going into the year. So we see some progress on that front, and I, what you need to avoid is whiplash and moving away from the financials because if some of this news just is less worse, if you will, yeah. on the trade front, then you're going to see yields uh, rise and you'll see intermediate parts of that curve start to pick up, and that will be wonderful for, for banks. And in the meantime, you've got these other drivers that uh, kind of keep us in there. Jeff Crumpleman, Chief Investment Strategist and Director of Equities at Mariner Wealth Advisors, joining us on the phone from Cincinnati as Taylor Riggs. We head closer and closer to the close of trading here on a Thursday afternoon. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.